goal. Two weeks left to finish hamartiology, the study of sin. This is the same handout. This is probably the fourth week on this handout. Uh, the extent of sin, how far does it go, implication of Adam's sin, and degrees of sin. Anybody want a handout? I've got 25 here. And it's probably our last week on the handout, so you can throw them away after today if you don't want them. Anybody? You don't mean what? Ah, I'm a very poor baker. I'm sorry. What? Ah, that's true. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, that's a good point too. <laughs> All right. So our goal today is to finish out, to round out our discussion of the extent of sin. Um, under hamartiology, the study of sin. We've been talking for several weeks on this idea of the implication of Adam's sins, of Adam's sin, rather, the original sin in the garden and its effects on us as subsequent generations, now several millennia later. So realize, anytime we enter into this discussion, this, the scholarly folks, they're debating this, and they've been debating it since Christ ascended. So we're not going to solve all of the issues in one day. Uh, we probably won't fully grasp the implications of Adam's sin to us. But at the same time, I was just meditating on it as I was thinking this morning, and I was just thankful that the gospel, though there are infinite com complexities within the gospel truth, at the same time, it is simple, clear, easily understood by even the youngest of child. You know, Paul told Timothy, you've known the Holy Scriptures from a child. They're able to make you wise into salvation. And so I was just thanking God that the gospel truth is simple, that when one recognizes that they have sinned against God, deserve condemnation, but God still loves them and gave his son Jesus to die for their sins, who rose from the dead, when they believe on Christ, then they're saved. I was just thanking God for that simple gospel truth, that as we consider the complexities of homartiology, at the same time, it's also true that it's simple. I have sinned, and therefore I deserve God's wrath. So I just wanted to preface it with that as we uh, now consider some complexities. So let's go back, Romans chapter 5, we're going to read Romans 5, 12 through 19. Welcome. How was the drive today? I uh, started late a little. Oh. We started late this morning and somehow got here earlier than we ever get here, so yeah, there you, go. You, you gave us your early. Yeah, you did. You're kind. Well, welcome. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, so Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5, we want to read verses 12 through 19. This is one of the premier passages that deals with Adam's sin and its effects on subsequent generations. Obviously, the other one would be Genesis 3 through 5, um, Adam's sins, the fall, the curse on the ground, the curse on the serpent, um, Cain, his Firstborn son, right? Cain was born first, then Abel. 
Kane was just rotten to the core. And we, it's, that's one generation removed from the first sinners. And it's just a wonder at how quickly evil permeated Cain's heart. But at the same time then, we're considering it now. So Romans chapter 5, look at verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense... Death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience... Many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, that is a beautiful passage. It's, we could spend hours and hours and hours trying to grasp everything that's in there. It is super wordy and technical, but remember the big picture is Paul is comparing Adam with Christ. The first Adam with the last Adam. The first Adam sinned, therefore we all have sinned. We all fall short of God's glory and have incurred God's wrath. So one sin brought death and condemnation by one man. But then the free gift on the other side, the one man Jesus Christ, through his one act of righteousness, he brought life for all so that we could reign with him. And the many offenses abounds to justification of life through Christ. It's beautiful. So, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's just, that's a good question. Because some might say, well, then not everyone's a sinner. But that if they say that, they probably didn't read Romans 1 through 3. Yeah, that's a great question. Paul, because uh, it's probably the parallelism at the end of the verse. Many were made sinners. Many will be made righteous. Yeah. The many. Yeah, the many as in the corporate all of us, lots of us. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
That's a good... See, because he does that. He says, many will be made righteous at the end of verse 19. But it says at the end of verse 18, even so by the righteousness of the one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. And we know that not all will be saved. God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the way I think through that part is, the free gift is available to all. The free gift came upon all men. The offer has been made. It's a universal offer for justification of life. But some would reject it and suppress the truth. And therefore, instead of righteousness, they only get wrath. Ah, I love it. So we thought through original sin. Adam sinned. And somehow we were participants in that. Whether it's, you know, the idea of that we actually sinned with Adam whether it's the idea that Adam sinned as our representative because he was all that there was of humanity, or if it's the, the idea that Adam sinned, and then we as subsequent generations, we also have chosen sin. Every one of us. We've all gone our own way. None of us seeks after God. Um, that's Romans 3. So however you work through that, the result is Adam sinned, death passed on all men because we're all sinners. So then we talked about imputed sin, the concept that in some way Adam's sin was imputed to our account, Romans 5.19. And that's one of the big ideas that Paul is working with is the idea of imputation. That just as Adam's sin was imputed to us, our sin was imputed to Christ, and Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. So the concept of imputation is essential to a grasp of our sin, but then God's grace. Without imputation, we've got no righteousness, which means that we don't have any good standing before God. So imputed sin, then we talked about inherited corruption, um, the idea that not only are we guilty sinners because of Adam and his sin, but also we've inherited corruption, a sin nature, a proclivity towards sin. Sin has tainted every aspect of our being, our intellect, our emotion, our will, our bodies, etc. There's no way that we can commend ourselves before a holy God. So then we talked about total depravity. We talked about a sin nature. And then that kind of brings us to a brief discussion of federal headship versus seminal headship, which that's just fancy words that have been coined to try to capture the idea of somehow our participation in Adam's sin. They're not in the Bible, so and it's an endless debate. You can go round and round and round. But I want to introduce us to the concepts, get us thinking about it, um, and then you can take it from there. You can kick that can down the road as far as you want it to go. But let me... I wish, I wish we had a, a TV we were displaying on. I would show this chart to you, but I want to show it to you anyways, just on my screen, because it was helpful to me. So, well, this is, so this is talking about inherited sin versus imputed sin. Inherited sin versus imputed sin. So inherited sin is the idea that Adam sinned, and then he passed it on to his son, Seth. And then Seth passed it on to his son, Enosh, then Kenan. And then all the way down all the generations, whatever your family heritage is, it all traces back to Adam and back to Noah. 
So sin has been passed down. Our corruption has been passed down from Adam all the way down through our grandparents, our parents, and to us. We are all born sinners. At the same time then, in order to try to capture what is meant by imputed sin, the idea is directly from Adam straight to us it's imputed. And directly from Adam to every individual. There's some way in which they were participant in Adam's sin. Does that make sense? I found that chart helpful just in depicting what we've already talked about. Sari? Yeah. Some people don't believe in imputed sin. So that's why I started the way I did. Because some people don't believe in imputed sin, and that makes it, then you just don't even have to deal with trying to understand that. How can Adam's sin be imputed to our account? And that's fair, because Romans 5.12, um, if, you just, if you have your Bibles, go and just peek at that so that you can know what I'm, know what I'm saying here. But Romans 5.12, I mentioned to you, I think... I can't remember, last week or week before. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That all have sinned, that's a verb in Greek. It just is sinned in the aorist tense. And so some would build an argument on the aorist tense that it's a punctiliar act. In other words, it happened at one point in space and time, when Adam sinned, we all, past tense, sinned with Adam. Okay, that's one view. And then that's the idea of we have to discuss natural versus federal headship. How did we sin in Adam? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've... It's some tidy little jingle, right? And Adam, I don't remember. What? Okay. You got it? You remember it? There you go. Adam's fall, we send all. Something like that. I haven't touched that book for like 20 years. I'm sorry. Impressive. It did not stick with me. The, yeah. Yep. As by one man sin entered into the world. Right there in verse 12. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, it's left its battle scars all over creation. Yeah. Yeah, they both are related to Adam. The other way people take verse 12, um, the aorist tense, one author I was reading, he says, the aorist tense is the tense that biblical authors would use when they don't want the verb to... Um, when they don't want you to concern yourself with the tense of the verb. In other words, it happened. Past, present, future, it it, it just happened. 
That's the point. And so it's the same if you go back to Romans 3.23. We all know that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same concept there. And we all understand, well, that's talking about personal sin. We've all sinned before a holy God, and therefore we're all condemned before a holy God. So however you take those, the point was to introduce us to the discussion, but then it's okay. Both, both ideas are, so inherited sin versus imputed sin, they're not incompatible ideas. You can hold both, but it's okay. You can work through it differently. There's different ways to grasp what's happening there. Yeah. No, that's what I was trying to illustrate with the chart. Is it's just two different ways that Scripture talks about Adam's sins affecting us. Ashley? So last week I started thinking about um, the Scripture where it says, In sin did my mother conceive me. And it made me think about how Jesus was conceived and how the only way Jesus could have been born is through immaculate conception. Yeah. And so, I mean, I obviously like this kind of thing about the generation of sin thing because we were born sinners because of the generational sin Is this kind of going on? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yep. It's. So that's part of why it's important to understand the virginal conception. Um, so I'm going back to Luke 1. I, it was really cool. Uh, so Luke 1, 35, uh, the angel is talking with Mary and describing that, hey, just so you know, you're going to conceive and bear a son, even though, yep, I know you've never known a man, but you're going to conceive. And he's describing how that's going to occur. And the angel, Luke 1, 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. There's some correlation, correspondence between the virginal conception and the Holy Spirit's somehow performing a a miracle such that in the virgin Mary's womb, the Christ was conceived, and that then this thing that's been conceived in you is a holy thing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, you're exactly right. There's some how that works. Wow. That's a that's a whole nother study, but Must have been. But just the I guess the, the concept of this and like understanding how sin travels through generation and how that understanding that scripture and how the uh rules in sin and my mother and all that, uh it it kind of makes it easier to understand how Jesus yeah right and that's that relates with let's see where is it 
on this sheet. Uh, under inherited corruption, Job 14, verse 4, remember that? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Remember that? That makes me think, well, then how did Jesus Christ, who was clean, come out of Mary, who was unclean? Well, that's kind of fascinating. You can think about that. But Job 14, verse 4. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. That's the answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. So that's a perfect. Well, Sarah, you had your hand up a while ago. Did you have something still to say, or did? Sorry. Well, well done. Yeah. So there's even down to the biological level, there's some way in which sin is inherited through the DNA and the genetics. Something going on there. It's interesting to remember Genesis 3:15, it's the seed of the woman that's going to crush this the seed of the serpent, the head of the serpent. Remember that? So, but it's the seed of the woman and it's like, well, the woman doesn't have seed. So what's going on there? So there's something to think through. Sorry? That's fascinating. Yeah. It's cool to just see science confirming what God said all along. Wow. That's neat.
grandparents went through them and they've also actually found that your DNA is more able to withstand problems than your That's fascinating. And those are pretty good too. <laughs> so that's an excellent uh, segue into considering federal versus seminal headship. It's built into the word, into the title, seminal headship. Um, some prefer the title natural headship. So let me just try to define briefly what those are, why theologians use those. Um, some people are maybe a mixture between the two. Who knows? You know. But federal headship is the idea that Adam was our representative. So much like we would vote on our representatives in government, and then they make decisions, say they make a treaty with a foreign country. Well, we as citizens had no participation in that act of forming the treaty, making an agreement, and yet we are legally bound by that agreement that our representative made. You see that correspondence? So the correspondence then of federal headship is that through Adam's choice as our legal representative, as the head of humankind, his choice to sin forever binds us by that decision that he made. Although we had no vote, no say in that decision, we're bound by it. So he plunged all of humanity into sin. The flip side is natural headship or seminal headship. Um, so then this is the idea that somehow we were in Adam. He was our forefather, so the language of Hebrews 7, we'll go look at that. We were in the loins of Adam when he made that choice. And so then we as his subsequent great-great-great-grandchildren, uh, we also participated in that decision. All of humanity was plunged into sin because that was humanity making that decision. Do you see the distinction between the two views? <laughs> okay. Let me try to say it short with succinct. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's why I said some would just kind of hold both in tandem and say, well, aren't they both true? And yeah, maybe they are. So let's go to Hebrews 7. Maybe that will help us better understand the seminal or natural headship view. Hebrews 7 is kind of the main text that those who believe in natural headship would turn to to support the idea. So essentially, it's the idea that we were seminally present in Adam. Uh, kind of what some would call, we were the twinkle in his eye. Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, we're looking at verse 9. 
Remember, the book of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is better in every single way. This section is arguing that Jesus is from a superior priesthood. Remember that? So the primary priesthood in Israel came through what line? What tribe? Levi. Through Levi. So then the author of Hebrews is arguing, well, Jesus is a priest, but he's not after the order of Levi. He's actually from the order of Melchizedek. Remember that? That random guy who has just like just a few verses about him back in Genesis. The author of Hebrews builds his entire, well, not his entire, but he builds his argument around that idea. So look at Hebrews 7 verse 9. And as I may say, as I may so say, Levi also, who received tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. He was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So just for maybe clarity, does anyone have another translation? How does your translation say that? Anybody? He was still within his ancestor. Still, excuse me, still within. Anybody else? Uh, NIV says he was still in the body of his ancestor. ESV says the loins of, of his ancestor. But the idea, so think Abraham. So that's back in Genesis 14. When, remember, Abraham, he goes and whoops up on the armies and takes back Lot and everything that had been stolen. But then he goes and he pays tithes to Melchizedek, who was the, the prince of Salem. Remember that? Just a, an interesting narrative that until you get to Hebrews, it might make you think, what was that all about? What was going on? Um, but the author of Hebrews is saying... So remember Abraham, he was back around 2000 B.C. But then Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had Levi. Well, yeah, all these 12 sons, but Levi is one of them. And then Levi, but then it goes through Aaron. And it's not for another 600 years plus after Abraham that the covenant's actually ratified with God that describes the Aaronic priesthood after the order of Levi. Do you see? So 600 years before the priesthood even existed, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Well, the author of Hebrews says, Levi was in the loins of his father Abraham paying tithes. And so he says, therefore, because Levi in the loins of Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Levi. And so that's why it's important to the argument of the book of Hebrews is because Jesus is a superior priest and he's after a superior priesthood. Does that make sense? I don't remember. What verse was that? 7 verse 1. 
priest, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Of God Most High. There you go. Amen. So they use this text to support the view that something, an action can be performed even prior to one's birth, prior to one's conception, because they did it in the loins of their ancestor. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. It's fascinating. The concept of seed is actually a key concept in the book of Genesis, if you trace it through. It's pretty cool. Yeah. It starts there, all the way through. Sarah, you were raising your hand. Did you have something you were thinking of? Could be. Maybe it's just the difference of audience, how they nuance it. Yeah. Because I mean, I see them both working together just fine, but Paul's using one more representative and yeah, both can be, com- that's, they're not incompatible views. Now, some people with, who take the view of federal headship use it as a way to skirt the issue of imputed guilt. They say, no, I don't want to, I don't want to believe in that or you know, I don't think that's what scripture teaches. That's fine. And federal headship can help you do that if you take it as the representative. Well, Adam sinned as the representative of the human race, but we didn't actually participate in that act until then we agreed with it the first time we committed a personal sin. So they're both compatible, but it's interesting and nuanced. Important to land on a view? No, not necessarily. You can think on it. But right, so then some people use it. So are you free? Yeah, some people use it to try that that side of it as an argument that well there's no no such thing as imputed guilt and therefore a baby who dies um, goes to heaven because they didn't have any personal sin and they didn't have any guilt from Adam's sin the flip side for someone who's arguing for a baby who passes to go to heaven um, if they believe in imputed guilt and seminal headship well then they say just as Adam's sin was imputed well, then Christ's righteousness is imputed in the sense that it dealt with Adam's sin. No one's going to hell 
for Adam's sin. So Christ, his one act of righteousness is applied to all in that it dealt with Adam's sin. And so then a baby who passes has not no guilt for Adam's sin because Christ's righteousness dealt with it and they have no personal sin. And so then they would go to heaven. I don't know what. And some people do believe that. Fascinating. We've got six minutes. Is anyone uh, married to this discussion? Or can we go on? Let's go. Let's say 1 Corinthians 15 for just an application point at the end. We'll come back to it. But let's discuss for a few minutes degrees of sin. That was one of our questions at the beginning of our study, and we want to just revisit it for a few minutes here. Um, there's some, oh, sometimes Protestants are hesitant to subscribe to a view that there are such things as degrees of sin. We tend to want to say sin is sin, all sin is bad, all sin is equal before God because it's all sinful. And that's true that all sin has the same eternal destiny of the wrath of God and the lake of fire for all of eternity. And that all of sin required the same payment, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, um, at the same time, let's go and look up some texts. So Numbers chapter 15, who wants to go and read just uh, verses 30 and 31 there? Ashley's got numbers 15. Sari, would you be willing to get uh, Luke 12, 47 to 48? And then who wants John 19, verse 11? Walter? Uh, just the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 11. And then finally, who wants Matthew 11, 20 to 24? Diana has Matthew 11, 20 to 24. All right, so Ashley with Numbers 15. 30 and 31. Okay, so read just the first sentence for me again. Sorry. There you go. So that acts defiantly. That's the idea there. Um, the King James says the soul that doeth ought presumptuously. In other words, it's a high-handed sin. It's I know what's right and I choose to do exactly the opposite. Well, then it says that there's no sacrifice for that sin. The soul's going to be cut off from his people. His iniquity will be upon him. The, the difference then would be if you go Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2, the sin offering, speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a soul shall sin through ignorance against any of the commands of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done, and shall do it against any of them, if the priest is anointed, and he goes on and describes the sin offering that can be made because of a sin of ignorance. So, the law dis distinguished between a high-handed sin of, I knew that I should not do it, and then I did the opposite. Or, you know, I knew that I should do it, and then I chose not to do it. 
a high-handed sin was different than a sin of ignorance. And then Leviticus chapter 5, just uh, another chapter down, talks more about that. But uh, in there, it has the account of the man who goes and gathers wood on the Sabbath. He knew on Sabbath I shouldn't gather wood. I should have gathered it yesterday or earlier on Friday. But he goes out and he gathers wood. And what happens to him? Oh, he's in big trouble. Sabbath keeping was essential. Okay, that's the Old Testament. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 2 and following. And then Leviticus 5, 1 through 4 also describes it. It describes what the sin offering was available for, like somebody who withheld evidence when they were called on to testify, accidental ceremonial defilement, um, when, they when they contacted an unclean animal, person, etc., or inability to fulfill a rash vow. It gives those examples. Let's see if we can make it through this and uh, conclude this discussion. Who had Luke 12? <coughs> Go ahead. Verses 47 to 48. So the servant who knew the master's will and didn't do it, they get a severe beating. The servant who didn't know gets a light beating. To whom much has been given, much will be required. Okay, so that's an interesting concept. John 19, 11. So this is Jesus before Pilate. He's telling Pilate, the one who delivered you, delivered me over to you actually has a greater sin. That's Caiaphas, the high priest, who knew the truth and should have known Jesus was Messiah and yet rejected the truth he'd been given. Pilate, on the other hand, was simply in power because God had given him that position of authority, etc. So Caiaphas actually had the greater sin. And then Matthew 11. Diana, you had that? Verses 20 through 24. Then he began to rebuke the cities of Jesus, in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Torazim, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat off in ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So that's interesting. Jesus brings this railing accusation against these cities in his home area. And he says, you've seen so much light. I've done these mighty works in you, and yet you've rejected me. He says, it's going to be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon, which were not a very uh, pleasant place. They weren't very upright. Same with Sodom, obviously. He says, you're actually going to have a worse judgment than Sodom. He tells that to Capernaum. Wow, that's pretty strong language. 
Sodom received a pretty strong judgment. Well, he says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. The last scripture we didn't look at, Matthew 7, that's the idea. Remember, if you see a speck in your brother's eye, deal with your log before you go address their speck. So obviously it's some picturesque language, but there's some implication there that the log is a lot bigger than the speck. So if you want to see clearly to deal with your brother or sister's small issue, deal with your big issue first. So interesting, it seems that there are, in fact, degrees of sin. Now, as we'll talk at length about, the same eternal punishment, the same necessary solution of the blood of Jesus Christ, but even in eternal punishment, the day of judgment, there are degrees of punishment, apparently, because Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum receive worse judgment than Sodom and Tyre and Sidon. Interesting. But it's uh, maybe the reason we as Protestants tend to be hesitant with that is um, we don't want to go too Catholic and you know have to go and say certain number of Hail Marys or whatever other things you've got to do to get yourself back in God's good grace. James 2, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's interesting. It's, it's a nuance, right? All sin is sinful. All sin deserves eternal punishment. But there is a difference between sin. And we know that because we parent our children differently. We look at criminals differently. Someone, when our kid you know, accidentally because they're foolishly being crazy and knock something over and it breaks. It was an accident. Maybe they should have been being more careful. But that's a lot different than a child who lies to your face or a child who takes the vase and purposely smashes it to spite you. We understand the difference. There are degrees of sin and sinfulness. Okay, we better wrap it up there. Let's close in prayer, shall we?